Section 21 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 21, Conquests of Timor the Tartar, A.D. 1370-1405, by Edward Gibbon, Part 2. In the meanwhile, Timur moved from the Araxes through the countries of Armenia and Anatolia. His boldness was secured by the wisest precautions. His speed was guided by order and discipline, and the woods, the mountains, and the rivers were diligently explored by the flying squadrons, who marked his road and preceded his standard. Firm in his plan of fighting in the heart of the Ottoman kingdom, he avoided their camp, dexterously inclined to the left, occupied Caesarea, traversed the salt desert and the river Halis, and invested Angora, while the sultan, immovable and ignorant in his post, compared the Tartar swiftness to the crawling of a snail. He returned on the wings of indignation to the relief of Angora, and as both generals were alike impatient for action, the plains round that city were the scene of a memorable battle, which has immortalized the glory of Timur and the shame of Bajazet. For this signal victory, the Mongol emperor was indebted to himself, to the genius of the moment, and the discipline of thirty years. He had improved the tactics, without violating the manners, of his nation, whose force still consisted in the missile weapons and rapid evolutions of a numerous cavalry. From a single troop to a great army, the mode of attack was the same. A foremost line first advanced to the charge, and was supported in a just order by the squadrons of the great vanguard. The general's eye watched over the field, and at his command, the front and rear of the right and left wings successively moved forward in their several divisions, and in a direct or oblique line. The enemy was pressed by eighteen or twenty attacks, and each attack afforded a chance of victory. If they all proved fruitless or unsuccessful, the occasion was worthy of the emperor himself, who gave the signal of advancing to the standard and main body, which he led in person. But in the Battle of Angora, the main body itself was supported on the flanks and in the rear by the bravest squadrons of the reserve, commanded by the sons and grandsons of Timur. The conqueror of Hindustan ostentatiously showed a line of elephants, the trophies rather than the instruments of victory. The use of the Greek fire was familiar to the Mongols and Ottomans, but had they borrowed from Europe the recent invention of gunpowder and cannon, the artificial thunder, in the hands of either nation, must have turned the fortune of the day. In that day, Bajazet displayed the qualities of a soldier and a chief, but his genius sunk under a stronger ascendant, and, from various motives, the greatest part of his troops failed him in the decisive moment. His rigor and avarice had provoked a mutiny among the Turks, and even his son, Soleiman, too hastily withdrew from the field. The forces of Anatolia, loyal in their revolt, were drawn away to the banners of their lawful princes. His Tartar allies had been tempted by the letters and emissaries of Timur, who reproached their ignoble servitude under the slaves of their fathers, and offered to their hopes the dominion of their new, or the liberty of their ancient, country. In the right wing of Bajazet, the cuirassiers of Europe charged with faithful hearts and irresistible arms, but these men of iron were soon broken by an artful flight and headlong pursuit, and the Janizaries alone, without cavalry or missile weapons, were encompassed by the circle of the Mongol hunters. 
Their valor was at length oppressed by heat, thirst, and the weight of numbers, and the unfortunate sultan, afflicted with the gout in his hands and feet, was transported from the field on the fleetest of his horses. He was pursued and taken by the titular Khan of Zagatai, and, after his capture and the defeat of the Ottoman powers, the kingdom of Anatolia submitted to the conqueror, who planted his standard at Kiotahia, and dispersed on all sides the ministers of rapine and destruction. Mirza Mohammed Sultan, the eldest and best beloved of his grandsons, was dispatched to Bursa with 30,000 horse, and such was his youthful ardor that he arrived with only 4,000 at the gates of the capital after performing in five days a march of 230 miles. Yet fear is still more rapid in its course, and Suleiman, the son of Bajazet, had already passed over to Europe with the royal treasure. The spoil, however, of the palace and city was immense. The inhabitants had escaped, but the buildings, for the most part of wood, were reduced to ashes. From Bursa, the grandson of Timur advanced to Nice, even yet a fair and flourishing city, and the Mongol squadrons were only stopped by the waves of the Propontis. The same success attended the other Mirzas and Emirs in their excursions, and Smyrna, defended by the zeal and courage of the Rhodian knights, alone deserved the presence of the emperor himself. After an obstinate defense, the place was taken by storm. All that breathed was put to the sword, and the heads of the Christian heroes were launched from the engines on board of two carracks, or great ships of Europe, that rode at anchor in the harbor. The Moslems of Asia rejoiced in their deliverance from a dangerous and domestic foe, and a parallel was drawn between the two rivals, by observing that Timur, in fourteen days, had reduced a fortress which had sustained seven years the siege, or at least the blockade, of Bajazet. The iron cage in which Bajazet was imprisoned by Timur, so long and so often repeated as a moral lesson, is now rejected as a fable by the modern writers, who smile at the vulgar credulity. They appeal with confidence to the Persian history of Sherafeddin Ali, according to which has been given to our curiosity in a French version, and from which I shall collect and abridge a more specious narrative of this memorable transaction. No sooner was Timur informed that the captive Ottoman was at the door of his tent than he graciously stepped forward to receive him, seated him by his side, and mingled with just reproaches a soothing pity for his rank and misfortune. Alas, said the emperor, the decree of fate is now accomplished by your own fault. It is the web which you have woven, the thorns of the tree which yourself have planted. I wished to spare, and even to assist, the champion of the Moslems. You braved our threats, you despised our friendship, you forced us to enter your kingdom with our invincible armies. Behold the event. Had you vanquished, I am not ignorant of the fate which you reserved for myself and my troops, but I disdain to retaliate. Your life and honor are secure, and I shall express my gratitude to God by my clemency to man. The royal captive showed some signs of repentance, accepted the humiliation of a robe of honor, and embraced with tears his son Musa, who, at his request, was sought and found among the captives of the field. The Ottoman princes were lodged in a splendid pavilion, and the respect of the guards could be surpassed only by their vigilance. On the arrival of the harem from Bursa, Timur restored the queen Despina and her daughter to their father and husband, but he piously required that the Servian princess, who had hitherto been indulged in the profession of Christianity, should embrace without delay the religion of the prophet. In the Feast of Victory, 
to which Bajazet was invited, the Mongol emperor placed a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand, with a solemn assurance of restoring him with an increase of glory to the throne of his ancestors. But the effect of this promise was disappointed by the sultan's untimely death. Amid the care of the most skillful physicians, he expired of an apoplexy about nine months after his defeat. The victor dropped a tear over his grave. His body, with royal pomp, was conveyed to the mausoleum which he had erected at Bursa, and his son Musa, after receiving a rich present of gold and jewels, of horses and arms, was invested by a patent in red ink with the kingdom of Anatolia. Such is the portrait of a generous conqueror, which has been extracted from his own memorials and dedicated to his son and grandson, nineteen years after his decease, and, at a time when the truth was remembered by thousands, a manifest falsehood would have implied a satire on his real conduct. Weighty, indeed, is this evidence, adopted by all the Persian histories, yet flattery, more especially in the East, is base and audacious, and the harsh and ignominious treatment of Bajazet is attested by a chain of witnesses. I am satisfied that Sherifeddin Ali has faithfully described the first ostentatious interview in which the conqueror, whose spirits were harmonized by success, affected the character of generosity, but his mind was insensibly alienated by the unseasonable arrogance of Bajazet, and Timur betrayed a design of leading his royal captive in triumph to Samarkand. An attempt to facilitate his escape by digging a mine under the tent provoked the Mongol emperor to impose a harsher restraint, and in his perpetual marches an iron cage on a wagon might be invented, not as a wanton insult, but as a rigorous precaution. But the strength of Bajazet's mind and body fainted under the trial, and his premature death might, without injustice, be ascribed to the severity of Timur. From the Irtish and Volga to the Persian Gulf, and from the Ganges to Damascus and the archipelago, Asia was in the hands of Timur, his armies were invincible, his ambition was boundless, and his zeal might aspire to conquer and convert the Christian kingdoms of the West, which already trembled at his name. He touched the utmost verge of the land, but an insuperable, though narrow, sea rolled between the two continents of Europe and Asia, and the lord of so many myriads of horse was not master of a single galley. The two passages of the Bosporus and Hellespont, of Constantinople and Gallipoli, were possessed, the one by the Christians, the other by the Turks. On this great occasion, they forgot the difference of religion to act with union and firmness in the common cause. The double straits were guarded with ships and fortifications, and they separately withheld the transports which Timur demanded of either nation, under the pretense of attacking their enemy. At the same time, they soothed his pride with tributary gifts and suppliant embassies, and prudently tempted him to retreat with the honors of victory. Suleiman, the son of Bajazet, implored his clemency for his father and himself, accepted by a red patent the investiture of the kingdom of Romania, which he already held by the sword, and reiterated his ardent wish of casting himself in person at the feet of the king of the world. The Greek emperor, either John or Manuel, submitted to pay the same tribute which he had stipulated with the Turkish sultan, and ratified the treaty by an oath of allegiance, from which he could absolve his conscience so soon as the Mongol arms had retired from Anatolia. But the fears and fancy of nations ascribed to the ambitious Tamerlane a new design of vast and romantic compass, a design of subduing Egypt and Africa, marching from the Nile to the Atlantic Ocean, 
entering Europe by the Straits of Gibraltar, and, after imposing his yoke on the kingdoms of Christendom, of returning home by the deserts of Russia and Tartary. This remote and perhaps imaginary danger was averted by the submission of the Sultan of Egypt. The honors of the prayer and the coin attested at Cairo the supremacy of Timur, and a rare gift of a giraffe or camel leopard and nine ostriches represented at Samarkand the tribute of the African world. Our imagination is not less astonished by the portrait of a Mongol who, in his camp before Smyrna, meditates and almost accomplishes the invasion of the Chinese Empire. Timur was urged to this enterprise by national honor and religious zeal. He received a perfect map and description of the unknown regions from the source of Irtish to the Wall of China. During the preparations, the emperor achieved the final conquest of Georgia, passed the winter on the banks of the Araxes, appeased the troubles of Persia, and slowly returned to his capital after a campaign of four years and nine months. On the throne of Samarkand, he displayed, in a short repose, his magnificence and power, listened to the complaints of the people, distributed a just measure of rewards and punishments, employed his riches in the architecture of palaces and temples, and gave audience to the ambassadors of Egypt, Arabia, India, Tartary, Russia, and Spain, the last of whom presented a suit of tapestry which eclipsed the pencil of the Oriental artists. A general indulgence was proclaimed, every law was relaxed, every pleasure was allowed, the people was free, the sovereign was idle, and the historian of Timur may remark that, after devoting fifty years to the attainment of empire, the only happy period of his life was the two months in which he ceased to exercise his power. But he soon awakened to the cares of government and war. The standard was unfurled for the invasion of China. The emirs made their report of two hundred thousand, the select and veteran soldiers of Iran and Tehran. Their baggage and provisions were transported by five hundred great wagons and an immense train of horses and camels, and the troops might prepare for a long absence, since more than six months were employed in the tranquil journey of a caravan from Samarkand to Peking. Neither age nor the severity of the winter could retard the impatience of Timur. He mounted on horseback, passed the Sihun on the ice, marched seventy-six parasangs, three hundred miles from his capital, and pitched his last camp in the neighborhood of Otrar, where he was expected by the angel of death. Fatigue and the indiscreet use of iced water accelerated the progress of his fever, and the conqueror of Asia expired in the seventieth year of his age, 1405, thirty-five years after he had ascended the throne of Zagatai. His designs were lost, his armies were disbanded, China was saved, and, fourteen years after his decease, the most powerful of his children sent an embassy of friendship and commerce to the court of Peking. The fame of Timur has pervaded the East and West, his posterity is still invested with the imperial title, and the admiration of his subjects, who revered him almost as a deity, may be justified in some degree by the praise or confession of his bitterest enemies. Although he was lame of a hand and foot, his form and stature were not unworthy of his rank, and his vigorous health, so essential to himself and to the world, was corroborated by temperance and exercise. In his familiar discourse he was grave and modest, and if he was ignorant of the Arabic language, he spoke with fluency and elegance the Persian and Turkish idioms. It was his delight to converse with the learned on topics of history and science, and the amusement of his leisure hours was the game of chess, which he improved or corrupted with new refinements. In his religion he was a zealous, though not perhaps an orthodox, Muslim. 
but his sound understanding may tempt us to believe that a superstitious reverence for omens and prophecies, for saints and astrologers, was only affected as an instrument of policy. In the government of a vast empire, he stood alone and absolute, without a rebel to oppose his power, a favorite to seduce his affections, or a minister to mislead his judgment. Timur might boast that at his accession to the throne, Asia was the prey of anarchy and rapine, while under his prosperous monarchy, a child, fearless and unhurt, might carry a purse of gold from the east to the west. Such was his confidence of merit that from this reformation he derived an excuse for his victories and a title to universal dominion. The four following observations will serve to appreciate his claim to the public gratitude. And perhaps we shall conclude that the Mongol emperor was rather the scourge than the benefactor of mankind. If some partial disorders, some local oppressions, were healed by the sword of Timur, the remedy was far more pernicious than the disease. By their rapine, cruelty, and discord, the petty tyrants of Persia might afflict their subjects, but whole nations were crushed under the footsteps of the reformer. The ground which had been occupied by flourishing cities was often marked by his abominable trophies, by columns or pyramids of human heads. Astrakhan, Charisme, Delhi, Ispahan, Baghdad, Aleppo, Damascus, Bursa, Smyrna, and a thousand others were sacked or burned or utterly destroyed in his presence and by his troops. And perhaps his conscience would have been startled if a priest or philosopher had dared to number the millions of victims whom he had sacrificed to the establishment of peace and order. His most destructive wars were rather inroads than conquests. He invaded Turkestan, Kipchak, Russia, Hindustan, Syria, Anatolia, Armenia, and Georgia, without a hope or a desire of preserving those distant provinces. From thence he departed, laden with spoil, but he left behind him neither troops to awe the contumacious, nor magistrates to protect the obedient natives. When he had broken the fabric of their ancient government, he abandoned them in their evils which his invasion had aggravated or caused, nor were these evils compensated by any present or possible benefits. The kingdoms of Transoxiana and Persia were the proper field which he labored to cultivate and adorn as the perpetual inheritance of his family. But his peaceful labors were often interrupted and sometimes blasted by the absence of the conqueror. While he triumphed on the Volga or the Ganges, his servants and even his sons forgot their master and their duty. The public and private injuries were poorly redressed by the tardy rigor or inquiry and punishment and we must be content to praise the institutions of Timur as the specious idea of a perfect monarchy. Whatsoever might be the blessings of his administration, they evaporated with his life. To reign, rather than to govern, was the ambition of his children and grandchildren, the enemies of each other and of the people. A fragment of the empire was upheld with some glory by Sharok, his youngest son, but after his decease, the scene was again involved in darkness and blood and before the end of a century, Transoxiana and Persia were trampled by the Uzbegs from the north and the Turkomans of the black and white sheep. The race of Timur would have been extinct if a hero, his descendant in the fifth degree, had not fled before the Uzbeg arms to the conquest of Hindustan. His successors, the great Mongols, extended their sway from the mountains of Kashmir to Cape Comoran and from Kandahar to the Gulf of Bengal. Since the reign of Aurangzebe, their empire has been dissolved. Their treasures of Delhi have been rifled by a Persian robber, and the richest of their kingdoms is now possessed by a company of Christian merchants, 
of a remote island in the northern ocean. End of section 21.